G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas, digital currencies, super states spying on your every move, your every purchase, controlling you by controlling your purse strings. Whatever happened to Bitcoin? Was Bitcoin uh, a fad, uh, a pyramid scheme, a Ponzi scheme, or does it still provide a way for individual human beings to extricate themselves from the arms of the state, the arms of big finance, and pursue a freer future. That's the worldview of Peter McCormack, who knows as much as anybody about Bitcoin. He has not been in the least bit dejected by the travails of cryptocurrencies over the past year or two. He has a podcast called What Bitcoin Did, And he reached out to me after seeing me online and invited me on that podcast, uh, I guess it would be a couple of years ago now, and we hit it off. He's a very smart thinker. He's not just a a tech bro with his head in the clouds. He thinks a lot about politics, about the relationship of the state and the individual, and he's still bullish about a future in which Bitcoin untethers us from the ties that constrain us and provides a future that's brighter than the one that we currently have. And the flip side of that is that there is a dystopian future without Bitcoin that he's keen to articulate. I found it fascinating. I hope you do too. Enjoy the one and only Peter McCormack. Are you still on the old uh, Twitter? Uh, X. X. Uh, on and off. Hmm. I go in. I go in little spells. I don't know. It's just. It's a bit like smoking. Right. Like I, f- I like it, but I feel shit afterwards. Yeah. So. I'm uh, not even sure that I like it, but in that way, maybe it's like smoking as well. You just sort of think you like it, but if you actually pay attention, you don't. Well, I, I overall, I'm like, I always question is. What's it adding to the world? And yeah, I, I buy that argument. Like during the hour of spring, it was amazing to find out exactly what's happening. And e- even now, if something happens, if you hear of like a plane crash or a volcano, you can just search on Twitter and you find out exactly what's happening straight away. But apart from that, you know, when I bring up my phone, I have a look. It's just people being dicks. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Do you understand why? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, the algorithm's designed in a way to make us... Uh, argue and stay on the platform. I was just looking at it, and um, old Brett Weinstein has... Uh, he's been got, blocked by Elon. He's gotten... Yeah, I like that you're so online that you already know <laughs> that that's happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Brett's in a huff. Did you see that? So Brett Weinstein's been blocked by Elon, which I thought was weird because I didn't think Elon blocked people. No. Well, I, don't, I mean, I would have assumed that he did, but not people like Brett Weinstein. He says, uh, Brett says, my account seems to be spe- specially restricted on X slash Twitter, high engagement tweets stay well below the fold on trends. Not the case under previous management. I brought this to Musk's attention. He asked for more info, then blocked me when I provided it. Perhaps that's on me, says Brett. I- increasingly, I just feel like it's a a bunch of wankers in a circle jerk trying to, like, whinging about why they're not more popular and why the algorithm's not favouring them more. Yeah, well, so they had that recent uh, thing where everyone started to get their payouts. Remember their payouts? No. Oh, oh, so you now get a payout. What does that mean? So if you're um, verified and uh, you are over a certain uh, level of engagement, you get a payout. Twitter will share the ad revenue with you. Some people were sharing like tens of thousands of dollars, right, Danny? 
Like tens of thousands, like some people getting like $20,000. Producer Danny is also in the room, but he's off mic. Hello, Danny. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's going to be weird and awkward with him just sitting in the corner like a, a schoolboy who's in trouble. A lot of people now listen to the show just for Danny. Do they? They're going to be disappointed. Should Danny be on mic? I mean, need he to get want Danny his own camera. Danny's getting big for his boots. Start of, start of the show. Watch out. Watch out, Peter. He's going to come up and knock you off your perch. He's Not got, careful. He's got a stalker called Derek. Oh, that's nice. An online stalker. Have we met Derek? No, we don't know who Derek is. Okay. Hi, Derek. Know, did you know listening. there's a Derek S coming to our event? It's oh, not. It's not the sound. He's already done a background check to make sure he's got security onto it. Excellent. Good yeah, to know. So on these payouts, the other it was like a few weeks ago, people were moaning about how much their payout was. And I was thinking, hold on a second. Two months ago, you didn't get anything. That's right. Exactly. How fast we forget. And now you're bitching because you, you got $1,000, not $2,000. It is funny, isn't it? The, yeah, the fact that we've set up, an, uh, I mean, this is I'm not the first to make this point, but the fact that, you know, in a night to create an ideal society, you would want to make all the incentives to be aligned so that ordinary people going about their ordinary business, responding to ordinary human emotions and human instincts, would be kind of channeled towards the better angels of their nature. And we've created exactly the reverse with social media, where things that inflame us or outrage us or pander to us or demonize things that we disagree with or you know, feed our worst insecurities or create boogeymen or make us feel good about ourselves, like for irrational reasons, all of those things the dial is turned up on. And now, so now we, you have to be a really good person just not to be a dick on Twitter. So I've got so many things to say about this. <laughs> so, so we got time, baby. So many things to say about this. Um, God, even even where to start. Firstly, when you described about uh, the incentives, uh, what drives incentives and what would be fair, uh, interestingly, the whole time you're saying that, I'm thinking back into my world of Bitcoin because we we do have this system that is designed based around incentives, a system you can't cheat, blah, blah, blah. That's one point. But uh, Secondly, um, I recently, like, so we were out last night and Danny said, oh, you've had a couple of tweets recently that have done quite well but i haven't really tweeted that much recently i think what it is is i've stopped you know when you tweet for the sake of it, it's like shit i should tweet something today <laughs> and then increasingly i don't know that feeling but well, i remember it well i was looking through your twitter and you promote the show and yeah that's it it's, it's basically automated now and complain at airlines yeah <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a while ago though i don't exactly. even think i would have tweeted anything in six months eight months maybe no but because of that you will probably notice if you had a look, things won't do as well anymore. Right. You kind of have to stay in the bun fight to keep yeah. doing well. You got to feed the beast. You got to feed the beast. And uh, I increasingly don't want to be part of that. No. Because I think ultimately it's a better, it's a set of bad incentives that conditions you to. Let me put it a different way. I can, uh, like, I consider myself a centrist. Now, so there's some people in America who think I'm woke lefty. There's people in the UK who think I'm Alex Jones. Mm. That's because um, all British people are communists, right? Exactly. Uh, I consider myself kind of a centrist, but like a, I will, I will veer into any end uh, of the political spectrum where I, th you know, what I think is right. I'll just say what I think. Mm. I don't think Twitter is good for a centrist. No, of course not. Or a reasonable person. No. It's good if you're like even today. I went on today and I saw all I saw today all day long was Tucker Carlson has interviewed some guy who apparently smoked crack and had sex with 
uh, Barack Obama. Good to know that Tucker's coming up in the world. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, what the fuck is this trash? Yeah. This is trash. I mean, by definition, if you use... I was talking to a brilliant guy, Toby Walsh, who if people haven't listened to my episode of Uncomfortable Conversations with Toby, they should. He's Australia's leading AI expert and one of the world's leaders in artificial intelligence. And he is reflecting on social media and saying Zuckerberg created social media to foster meaningful connection between people. That was his catchphrase. He wanted to create meaningful connection. You can't measure meaningful connection. So instead, he created proxies for meaningful connection, which were the like button, sharing content, commenting on things. Turns out those are terrible proxies because meaningful connection or centrism or nuance are not is not necessarily stuff that you actually want to engage with. Stuff that you want to engage with, stuff that you want to either thumbs up or thumbs down or comment on or share is often stuff that just riles you up emotionally. It's often stuff that either aggravates you or panders to you. So you're right. Why would anyone bother to write an angry screed in the comments section and then forward a post about something that was reasonable? Yeah, I think there's a difference between Facebook and Twitter, though. Like, what Zuckerberg did with Facebook is essentially create a community for you and your friends and your family. And so I don't tend to see, I don't really use Facebook much anymore, but when I did, it was kind of like baby photos or we went out last night, here's some photos or, you know, I'm traveling here and that's cool. Oh, I'm there as well. Like, I find... Have you not used it since 2008, Peter? No. Because it hasn't been that for a while. For most be... people, I think. Really? Yeah, you get more and more of the person who knows the person who's in a group with somebody else on Facebook who's argue, who's shouting loudly about Boris Johnson. I see. I see less of that, but I don't use it so much. Right. But I. But well, it's I, not as bad as Twitter. But that's a low fucking bar, isn't it? Well, I just I th- I always felt like Twitter was when that was happening. Twitter was that kind of like reasonable place originally where you could go and have a conversation about things that interested you to do with work. And then just over the last six, seven years, it's gone just cra- batshit crazy with politics. Right. And uh, people focusing on their career. Using Twitter for their career, and the problem with Twitter for your career is it rewards being a dick or it rewards partisan opinions. I always I always use Tim Paul as my reference point. Uh, I used to really like his films he made a long time ago. Uh, and I know you called him a dum-dum. I did call him a dum-dum. You called Ste- him a dum-dum. I stand by that yeah, remark, yes. I, the man is a, is technically a dum-dum. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I feel like he has been audience captured and now he knows how to monetize being a dick. Mm. And I feel like he's left behind who he, who he was because he found a way of monetizing right-wing anger. And He doesn't like being called right-wing. I don't think. I mean, I don't pay attention to him. But that was what also caused Umbridge when I said that he was right-wing. Apparently he's he's a a champion of the left. But what does left and right mean in that context? You're an an anti-establishment populist uh, slash conspiracy theorist, and you can be from either end of politics. Yeah, no, you can be. Uh, See, he called himself, what is it, a disaffected liberal? Probably. Or disenfranchised liberal. Again, I don't pay much attention to the man. I mean, he doesn't have to be right-wing to monetize the the anger of the right wing. Right. Do you know what I mean? And so, yes. And I just found like he was increasingly just 
uh, just being inflammatory. Yeah, I mean, I think he's more than a dum dum now. He was a dum dum when I said that on Joe Rogan's show, which was eighteen months ago. Now, now I think I don't, from what I can see of him, he's actually a dick or a dick dick as well. He's probably a dum dum and a dick dick because, like, you know, he's not just an idiot <laughs> peddling specious, uh, you know, chaff to to people who who want to lap it up. He's also just a mean and nasty person, it seems. Because the things, the types of things that that universe of, I don't want to throw Tim Pool under the bus, although I do, but you know, there's a, he's not the only person in this universe that has gone down the rabbit hole of cherry picking things to get outraged about and then misrepresenting them to millions of people. Yeah, but he, that to me, is the perfect example of somebody who's, as I said, is captured by his audience. Mm. He's learned a way to monetize it. He's learned a way to rile people up, uh, to get his likes, to get his retweets, whatever. Um, and I think it's sad because I thought he was a good journalist. Do you worry about that in your line of work? What worry about it broadly or for myself? For yourself? No, I, I'm. It, it's hard for me to get captured because uh, in our little Bitcoin world. I'm probably considered by, ha, huh, this is where Danny needs a mic because Danny would be a better person to ask. But there is a lot of people who are, I would say the Bitcoin world is predominantly people from the right or libertarian camps. And obviously there's a big crossover between the two. There's very small left progressive Bitcoin movement, but growing. And I think if you ask people to put me on the spectrum, they'll put me more towards the left. Right. And no, but I mean, you can be captured by audience in any number of ways, right? You could pander towards preconceptions and misconceptions that people who tend to be keen on Bitcoin hold, even if they're not political. No, I, I, think, I, I think I'm probably one of the people who, who has done their best to avoid that because I actually realize, you know, in the, in the world of podcasting or the podcast game, the most important thing is authenticity, like being you. And it's better to have people dislike you but believe you believe what you're saying yeah then uh then try then 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 pander to the audience yeah so i you know there's a lot of i say a lot of things that are considered controversial in the world of bitcoin and have a lot of people call me an idiot but like my show is probably the biggest one about bitcoin so i and i think that's happened because i won't i can't get captured yeah yeah that's not to say uh Look, it's a slippery slope that you can easily fall into sometimes. It yeah, I don't, think it's, I don't think people do it intentionally. Yeah. It just, they just see what works and see what gets clicks and what doesn't. It is something they have to be mindful of. I have totally. to be mindful of it as well. And the price is probably that we have a smaller audience than, well, I have a smaller audience than I could have if I were corrupt. I think you're buying, t I think you're buying time and longevity over kind of like these short-term gains. Yeah, and like I don't, I don't want to be a dum-dum or a dick-dick, you know? Like so there's, there is a value in <laughs> being neither of those things. <laughs> what about respect? You know, what about having respect? Being respected, having credibility. These are things that I value more than sheer brute numbers. Yeah, it, it is. A, and and it can be a tricky one, I think, for some people because I think some of these people perhaps go through a period where they're trying to make this career in this world of content and it can be hard to make money. You know, I, I didn't make any money of my podcast for two years. Mm. And then you do. And if something you're doing is getting more downloads, whether it's like a clickbait title or, a, you know, an extreme guest of some kind. Like, I give, I give a good example. There was a whole period where Andrew Tate was doing the rounds, and I wouldn't have him on my show because I think he's a fucking idiot. But I could have, and I know that show would probably be, a, mm. probably the biggest show I would have had. 
Um, but I just, I, th- I, I think that was a short-term play because you're kind of, you're giving up part of your soul to get that, you know, show that does one, two million on YouTube, mm. whatever. And I just, I didn't want that. Mm. So I, th- I think you're trading time and longevity. There probably is a way of doing Andrew Tate, but you'd probably need to spend a long time doing a lot of research and come armed with a lot of facts and take him down. Yeah, I just, but I just don't want it. That may not be your mo. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it could be the right person. I just, I don't know. I just zero. It's somebody I have zero interest in, and so I like. I won't talk to that person. And I've had some controversial people on my show. I mean, I had Nigel Farage on recently, and you know, yeah, sharing that show up on Facebook amongst my uh, closer social circle. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people who would just be horrified that I even spoke to the man. Mm, mm. Um, so I'm not. I won't avoid controversial people, but it, but it has to be relevant. I'm not. I'm not going to trade. I'm not going to trade longevity. Yeah, I mean, it depends how you do it as well. It just does depend. I mean, you know, there's this weird phenomenon at the moment of the Lex Friedman style podcast where you just get someone on and then you just basically let them talk and you have almost no skill in wrangling the conversation or pushing back on them whatsoever. Uh, God bless Lex. I mean, but and I've never seen a man do more with so little than Lex Friedman. <laughs> like he just sits there and then asks like one, the next question that he's written down on his piece of paper without listening to the guest. And then they talk for a while and then he just asks the next question. And if you go on Lex Friedman's show, you are definitely not going to get pushback. Have you, you know, been on Lex Friedman's show? But I have not, no. Yeah. But I mean, I would not I would not be worried or scared going into that room being like, oh, wow, this ferocious intellect is going to come come at me with everything he's got. He, he listens and asks polite questions. Well, he, uh, he blocked me on Twitter. <sighs> How do you get blocked by a, you know, by a limp, wet fish? What is that? <laughs> what do you have to do? Uh, I don't know. He blocked a lot of Bitcoin people at one point. Did he? Yeah. Uh. Um, but uh, he, he did it with love and, you know. Yeah, I'm sure he did it with love. Yeah, I'm sure he did it with love. He just wants to understand everybody. He wants everybody to be able to talk to each other. Yeah. Well, uh, and, uh, go on. Well, I was just going to say, and then if you are doing critical or journalistic interviews or trying to have uncomfortable conversations and dig into what makes really makes people tick, the other odd thing about having controversial guests is that it does seem there's a kind of a, an uncanny valley here where if they're a bit bad, you'll get more pushback than if they're genuinely horrendous. Like, I'd get more pushback from having Nigel Farage on the show than I would a serial killer. You know why, right, though? Why? Because I think at the more extreme ends, you will bring out their fans into... Like, what, how do you judge it? Do you judge it by the YouTube comments or, t- or tweets? Well, I just think I would be more likely... To, I would be less likely to be cancelled if I interviewed the Christchurch shooter than if I interviewed, um, I'm trying to think of non-Australian examples, Nigel Farage would be a good one. Or Yeah, I, do, I, I tend to find the most extreme people have a really hardcore group of fans. And so if, when I judge it, say, by YouTube comments, um, it's mainly positive that you've had him on. Yeah, you, thanks for having him on. Yeah, Nigel's great. Nigel's absolutely amazing. Um so that's why I think that maybe happens. But no, but I'm saying the reverse. I'm saying yeah. there would be more blowback. There is more blowback from a Nigel Farage than there is from a serial from interviewing a serial killer. Okay. In other words, hmm. you you okay. interview someone who's a bit Hold bad, on. and I feel the blowback is worse than you interviewing someone who's really really bad. My only 
assumption is that if I interview a serial killer, everybody knows that I'm not sympathetic to serial killers. But if I interview a white supremacist, for example, I'm not saying Nigel Farage is one, but were I to interview a white supremacist, then people are like, well, why are you platforming a white supremacist? They wouldn't say, why are you platforming a serial killer? Yeah, that platform, I, mean? I hate, hate that platform and word. Okay, yeah. let me ask you then. So Uncomfortable Conversations is, is your podcast. Yes. Um, you did used to work, do you, you don't still work at the ABC. I right? do still work oh, you at do. the ABC as well, yes. But, but Okay, what is the crossover between the two? <laughs> there is none. No, but it is it but what I mean is is there a chance that you have just by having a conversation on your podcast, you'll put at risk what you do with the ABC? Yes, definitely. Okay. Yeah. And if that happens, so be it. That's fine. It's a big world. There are other opportunities. But are you under any pressure? No. And the reason I bring it, I've wrote it down here. Yeah. This morning I was listening to Uberman's podcast. He yeah. seems to be blown up at the moment. Yeah, good for him. Uh, yeah, he's he's not a Lex Friedman. He's an actual human being with, <laughs> with ideas and thoughts and understanding and knowledge, expertise. He had uh, Mark Andreessen on. And it was, it's a really good one. I like, oh, great. I, I, like, I, I like both of them. Yeah, I can listen to it for hours. But he was saying he has a list of things now. He keeps this list of things he knows he can't talk about. Who, Hubie? Yeah. Well, Hubie. Hubie's got a list. A band list. Yeah, he's got a list I'll of things. i have to drop Hubie a line. I mean, you can hear it. He says, a list of things he can't talk about or he won't talk about because he said of the way it may get cut for different Vox Pops. Oh, come on. But he's yeah. just being a pussy. I mean, who, who's, who, you can't take down the Hubes, the Hubester. Hey, listen, I'm just, I'm just. He doesn't even work for anyone else. He works for himself. I'm repeating the message he said. Yeah. And he said it's a growing list. This is part of the problem. We've got to grow up here. Yeah. But, so, with your podcast, are you seeking are you essentially seeking his list? Do you yeah, want Yeah, in a way, in a way, in a way. I think that we need to, to the, if we end up in a better situation culturally and politically than where we are, if we avoid a scenario in which we are more and more divided into more extreme camps that understand each other less, if we are to head off the threats posed by the far right and the far left and grapple with the challenges that humankind faces like pandemics and climate chaos and nukes and whatever, then it will be because we are less uh, anxious about tiptoeing around subjects, less keen to jump down each other's throats, less eager to demonize other people's points of view more keen to be as generous as possible towards other people's ideas and more keen to have conversations that are uncomfortable. That's my general philosophy. So to the extent that prominent people like Huberman refrain from touching issues that they regard as being toxic, that is, a, that is not a contribution. Yeah, so I found it disappointing. Like when I heard it, I was like, well, hold on a second. There, there is self-censoring but there's publicly admitting yourself censoring mm. and saying you've got a list and it's a big growing list it did make me think, huh, I, there's a chance I avoid your podcast now. Mm. Because look, I know some people will self-censor to accept. I mean, you know, do I self-censor possibly on certain very specific extreme issues I just don't want to get into because I just, it's not in my world. What are those? Um, hmm. What are the things I would potentially self-censor on? Okay, I own a football team. It has a men's and ladies' team. I self-censor getting into 
when any like I feel like sometimes people when I'm asking me about the football club are trying to get me into conversations about maybe gender right that I don't want to get into because I'm trying to run a football club so right males you know and I I avoid having that because I think it's a trap yeah I think someone's laying me a trap and they're trying to get me to a position where I can be cancelled right. But That's isn't it. that uh, doesn't it matter where that conversation takes place? If it takes place on your terrain, on your podcast for a duration, as long as you want it to, I think it's, wouldn't you be able to do that? I think it's different f- when I'm being questioned when I'm doing it on the podcast, which is that weird world of like part media, part journalism, to being the chairman of a football club where I'm running a business. Yeah, yeah, I see. Like, I see. let me just run that business. Mm. I'm going to focus on that business. I think that's like the only place. I might not talk about things because I think it's boring. Yeah. Well, there's lots, of course, that yeah. I don't talk about because I think it's boring or because I don't think it's worth focusing on or it's a there's a there's an opportunity cost in talking about that when we could be talking about other things. Yeah. But I and I agree with you. I don't. I'm not going to wade into you know the precise nature of biological differences between men and women if I'm being asked a question on a panel show or something like that, which might be the equivalent of you acting in your capacity as the chairman of a football club. Like there's a time and a place for everything. But I think there is no better time or place than on one's own podcast to to, to broach sensitive issues. If we can't do it there, then we can't do it anywhere. And if we don't model those conversations for lay people who don't have the luxury of having podcasts with large audiences, then people don't get to see that Actually, you can try to wrestle with things in a constructive way without demonizing other people and ending up in fisticuffs. And so I do think it would be a shame if more and more people followed the Huberman route of having lists of things they don't talk about. You, you can't talk about it on social media because it's impossible to have nuance there, yeah. right? I mean, we've established that. Yeah. But I think you can and should talk about it in forums where if you were to get misrepresented you could just say look go back and listen to the whole hour and a half Mm -hmm. or two hours and then come to me and and, you know get angry about that clip that you just extracted yeah i could i can completely agree with the uh you can't get to the nuance of a discussion on twitter plus also uh i don't feel like people are trying to have a fair back and forth on twitter they're trying to score points yeah they're trying to win at any cost Mm. I think it's much easier in a podcast. Like if we were in a difficult topic, I'd feel, you know, feel quite comfortable going. Do you know what, Josh? You made me rethink that. Yeah, okay. I was, perhaps I was wrong, and I, I think that's an easier forum for it. I do though. It, that did kind of like that Huberman thing this morning. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's right. really tricky now. Let's... Like, do I, do I trust you mm. on any of your answers? But I do. Then I, I think back and I think, do you know what? It is uncomfortable conversations that you're doing. We are in a place where, like, our mainstream media will not have the uncomfortable conversations. Is is this like the resistance? I mean, one thing, one benefit that I have is that I had this podcast before the public broadcaster offered me a show, and so I was able to say I just have to be able to continue doing the podcast without any interference, and so that is the norm, right? That is the standard under which I'm employed. If I had had my public broadcasting show and had wanted to launch a podcast like this, there's no way that I would have gotten clearance. To do it, I imagine. So that's the status quo. Will there come a day when someone mischievous who wants to take me down extracts a whole bunch of things that I've said in various episodes of this podcast and puts together a mashup that makes me seem either wildly left-wing or wildly right-wing or bigoted in some way or delusional in some way? Um, Probably, right? And maybe then I'll lose my job and that will be fine. Um, I mean, it won't be fine, but 
that will be a price that is worth paying to try to continue fighting the fight of allowing civilization to flourish and human beings to have reasonable conversations with uh, with each other. I would not. I would feel corrupted if I had to curtail the kinds of things that we talk about on this podcast for fear that someone is going to get into mischief. But is it the resistance? Is it is this you know? It's the success of your show, Rogan. People who are pushing the envelope of conversations. Is this like the resistance, a response to the fact that the mainstream won't deal with that? I wish the mainstream would, and I try to as much as I can. And to be honest, I have fairly free reign. I think a lot of this is self-imposed. Uh, I think a lot of the behaviour of journalists in mainstream media institutions is self-imposed fear and just, you know, not wanting to go through the hassle of, you know, I mean, speaking about gender, there was I did one story on my ABC radio show about the closure of the Tavistock Gender Clinic in the UK, which was a big deal in the UK. This mm-hmm. was the ma- the leading uh, gender clinic in the UK, and it was found to have not been serving the interests of young people, especially who were coming in to, to get gender care. And the Australian media was silent on it. And I thought that was odd because doesn't what the UK does have some bearing? Wouldn't that cause some reflection on the way that we do things here? Wouldn't that be just a a little part of the media cycle? And so I interviewed the head of the Australian Psychiatric Association who also had concerns about paediatric gender um, policy in the medical establishment. Um, His concern was that if a 15-year-old girl presents with gender dysphoria and claims that she's actually a boy and that she wants to transition, that for a psychiatrist to ask about other underlying psychological conditions that might be going on, for example, whether she has autism or depression or anxiety, is sort of taboo now. That's regarded as being uh, uh, de-affirming care or like unaffirming care, right? Whereas the model is that you're supposed to affirm. So his point is, it sort of deprives psychiatrists of some of our toolkit if if we're mandated to take at face value every claim that every young person makes regarding their own gender identity. Like these are complex things and there can be a social contagion, there can be other things that are going on that are worth interrogating. So I had him on my show and needless to say, then had to spend a half day responding to complaints that come in uh, and they're, they're clever, like extreme activists know how to read the charter of the public broadcaster and compare it to everything that you've said and nitpick the precise number of people who I said were involved in the class action suit against Tavistock, uh, you know, where the number was estimated by a law firm but actually ended up being a slightly different number. So you have to go back through all the reams of research. Where did I get that information from? Where did I get that information from? It ended up being cleared. But the point is not whether it gets cleared or not, or whether I did anything wrong, which I hadn't. The point is that they know that there's a tax on your time and your attention. And so a lot of journalists, I think, it's just like not worth the hassle. Why would you why would you wade into this? So I don't think it's an institute. When you say the resistance, I don't think it's like resistance against the dark force of like the mainstream media, which is in the pocket of corporations or like in cahoots to push a particular narrative. I think it's more insidious than that. It's just the the accretion of millions of little decisions made by individual journalists and editors who come from a particular worldview and are doing things the way they think they should be done. Hmm. That tax is interesting because um, 
you have to be well prepared in advance. Because, you know, it's like sometimes, like, we don't know what we're going to talk about today. No, that's right. So you might wade into a topic and go, well, I th- I'm kind of aware that, like, the data tells me something along these kind of lines, mm. but you would have to be accurate up front prepared for that challenge and taxing yes, time. Yes, it's difficult. I mean, especially when you're doing a three-hour talkback radio show. Like, I'm not putting together a news bulletin, which is yeah. five minutes long, where I can check everything. It's off the cuff. So, But there is, as a result, a certain amount of lenience uh, on my show that there wouldn't be if it was a BBC, you know, news report. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is fascinating to follow, though, because... I don't know. I mean, I I don't really watch or listen to much mainstream content anymore. More just because I buy more into the authenticity of a independent publisher, whether it's yourself or Joe or I have even listened to Lex a few times. <laughs> I'll forgive you. Not not for a while. Um, but I I feel there's like a more authentic conversation happening there. They are diving into important issues. They are opening themselves up a bit more. To risk, yeah, to the risk of the the council mm. crowd coming up for the up, uh, coming for them, and then after that, like I think also because you make a show when you go back to something like the BBC, which by the way I don't think is all that bad. Yeah, you know, they do some on certain topics. They do some great reporting. On other things, you know, they're you know, bending the knee to to the to the well, sometimes even the government. Um, but I. I kind of find myself in a world where I'm I'm noticing the questions they're not asking. Right. Do so you know what I mean? Yes, I do. Yeah. It's like, why aren't you asking that question? Why aren't you pushing here? And then I know why they're not, because they want to stay in this kind of like comfortable, yeah. narrow lane. I mean, the problem is that Joe and me and you and Lex, we're not news gatherers. So there is still a... A, a keen need for mainstream news and uh, you like as ai gets better and as the bullshit fire hose gets stronger and stronger and more and more convincing uh, it's going to become increasingly necessary i think for us to rely on certain gatekeepers of information like the bbc and the abc because you're not going to be able to go on twitter when there's a volcano erupting and rely on what you see there because so much of it is going to be produced by artificially intelligent bots yeah, you've, we'll, you've come quite down that AI rabbit hole, haven't you? Yeah, it's starting to worry me. Okay, interesting. Okay. And there's lots of opportunities, but I don't think we're grappling with the threats. Are, are you using it yourself at all? Not much, no, only as a novelty. Right, okay. So I, I use it on a daily basis. What for? Um, writing press releases uh, and uh, artwork concepting, design work in mid-journey. I mean, I can get a design concept put together in 10, 15 minutes and take it to a designer and say, here's a brief. Right. Um, I find it very useful, but I'm also very consciously aware of what what this potentially means, let's say, at the, at the softest level in the jobs market as somebody with two kids thinking about their future. Uh, I'm probably not as aware as I should be of the potential threat. Um, I... I can I can see now how I can see the AI bots on Twitter. I got one specific one that responds to every tweet I write. Right, it exists there and just summarizes it. And I think it's a, like an interesting window to what's coming. Yeah, but I I think there's a really cool thing that might come out of this that the AI might destroy Twitter, make it completely unusable. Yeah, 
I mean, it might destroy the internet. I've interviewed one expert, and she thinks that within 18 months, potentially, 90% of the internet will be produced by machines, and that really the, the World Wide Web as we know it may end up only having a lifespan of a few decades from when it began until now because it, it, as, as a place where human beings communicate things with other human beings because the AIs are going to be indistinguishable from people and they'll be able to use websites and click on things and enter information and sign up for things and we may have to create walled gardens for humans where you need human verification to get in and there'll be little intranets where we can which we can use as if it were the world wide web but the actual internet as a as a place where you can comment on things and stuff like that is about to be washed away because so many of the commenters will be computers isn't there part of you that thinks actually that might be a good thing <laughs> yeah possibly yeah. possibly i mean comments threads see ya twitter I mean, Later. You, you must be a similar age to me. Yeah, I'm 45. I don't know. How. 45 in October. There you go. So you re- you remember a world of no internet? Oh, absolutely. It's extraordinary. Yeah. No mobile phones, no iPads. Yeah. You just went outside and did things. Yeah. Uh, my daughter is addicted to TikTok like every other girl. And if I, as much as I try and stop her, when I'm not, I can't be there all the time. No. And uh, I, I see a different childhood to the one I had. Mm. One where they have... Uh, a childhood that's much more controlled by screens and less running around in the fields. It just naturally exists. Also, that fear that you have if your kids being out there in the fields and who the fuck. <laughs> with them. But like it's it, yeah. I I can kind of romanticize about the internet being destroyed, right? In a weird way. Yeah, but I don't think it's going to be replaced by running around in a field, Peter. No, but you know what I mean. Better human interactions. No, you don't. You don't see. The I think it'll be. Re- well, if if I were convinced that, that that human interaction was going to replace the demise of the internet, I would I would be heartened by that. But I think it'll just be interactions with more sophisticated machines and with people who are mediated by increasingly sophisticated uh, prisms and portals that we engage with each other through. I don't see a de-escalation of the sophistication of algorithms and social so, so, media. So what is it you're saying? That the internet functioning as it is today will be destroyed but we'll yeah. still use it yeah that it'll be replaced by yeah by a hodgepodge of other things but i mean i'm not talking when i say the internet i don't mean tiktok i mean tiktok will still be tiktok right you may need to be verified as a human being to use tiktok hmm. but it'll still exist i mean what's amazing to me is that is also what's happening to your daughter's just attention and capacity for depth of focus like that's the thing that i miss like it's amazing i was thinking about when i was 15 say and you made plans to go to the movies with a mate and you know you would show up at the movie theater on time on time and if they weren't there you had no way of contacting them and you had nothing to do you didn't have to you didn't have a supercomputer in your pocket to pull out and look at other people who were presenting photos of themselves or videos of themselves to you know, that were algorithmically select, selected to arouse you in some way, not sexually, but like just to engage you in some way. You didn't have Twitter to look at other people arguing on the other side of the world. You just stood there and you like looked at other people's faces as they walked past and you looked at the clouds until eventually when they didn't show up, you you just wandered off and went home. Well, you you had a Walkman maybe. Maybe. 
Yeah, or a Discman, possibly. Listen, a bit of Bon Jovi. And it's amazing to me that it's amazing to me that that's how we lived. Yeah. You know, it shouldn't be amazing to me that that's how we lived, but it is amazing to me to imagine that you couldn't fill every spare second of time with something that was going to capture your attention. And you actually just had to sit and ponder occasionally. It's funny you raise that because I I tell my kids this. I was like, yeah, I say, you go to the cinema or you you go to town, you say, we'll meet there, we'll be there at two o'clock. And usually they'd be there within five minutes either side of that. But you had to be there. Mm -hmm. You had to turn up. People were punctual. There's no phone call, I'll be there in 20 minutes and they'll go off and do something. There isn't even a phone call anymore. There's just a text message. You know, know, you don't even plan for what movie session you're going to see. You don't even plan for when you're going to, you know, we'll catch up tonight or tomorrow i'll text me you're even watching the movie yeah that's right you're watching something else on your phone um so where is uh crypto going to come into all this i want to get your thoughts about how your thinking has changed if at all over the past couple of years about the yeah role of cryptocurrencies well it's all bitcoin everything else is bullshit okay just be quite frank about that um and the all the only use for crypto outside of bitcoin is that we have these things called stable coins digital dollars that exist on certain networks uh, i've just been out to argentina rampant high inflation uh if you've got access to the tools you know converting your local dying argentinian pesos into uh, a digital dollar is useful it protects you right. especially with 10 percent uh, monthly inflation so, unless the unless the link snaps, as it did with one of the tethered coins, didn't it? I don't know what you mean by that. Didn't during the the crash last year? It wasn't one of the USDTs oh, yeah, or something like was, that. Um, I mean, it, it was supposed to be tethered to a dollar, but it turned out not to have yeah that stocks. Was, uh, and everyone lost their shirt. Luna, yeah, yeah. Uh, Luna went down, so then it was yeah. But 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 that would wouldn't be the one I would use. I would uh, tether is the one I would use. And that exists on multiple different protocols. That's on Tron. It's on Ethereum. Yeah, it's platform agnostic. But but generally speaking, that's the only use for crypto I see outside of Bitcoin. What about the boosters of Ether and Ethereum and smart networks and whatnot? Um, I just think um, smart contracts and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I just think people. I think these people believe in something. Um, I, I don't think they're seeing the bigger picture. They're believing in something that's becoming more centralized. Like the, and they don't fully understand Bitcoin. So the power of Bitcoin is very simple. It's decentralized. That's it. And be- because it's decentralized, I can send Bitcoin to you from anywhere in the world at any point. No one can stop me. There's no middleman. Government can't switch it off. And its decentralization makes it a very powerful tool. Like, like the full concept that you've got this one thing in the world that the government cannot switch off. No government, even China ban it, they've not managed to switch it off. It's super powerful. The fact it also then has value is even more powerful. Um, like I'm off to Lebanon next week to make a documentary and I have to pay for a service up front. I had to use Western Union and I hit a Western Union limit. So I could only send a certain amount. So I've got to take cash next week. It would be much easier if that person was a Bitcoin and I could just send them the Bitcoin then then it would be done. So this power of uh, decentralized money that is censorship resistant, peer-to-peer, um, is super useful for me. I think the people who have bought into crypto, the other cryptocurrencies, the other platforms they promote, they, they're just not seeing the big picture. Right. But what, so what about the skeptics who say that, I mean, all of that sounds great with the exception of the fact that the value of your 
money with Bitcoin when you translate it into fiat currencies is so volatile that it, it's like you might as well be the Argentinian peso because now it's worth half of what it was 12 months ago and it's very hard to do business when there's something that goes up and down that much. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's a very good point and and uh, the, the two points I would make on that. Firstly, the volatility you're uh, paying for now is the price of risk for investing early. You cannot take a asset. Are we still early? Yeah, very, very early, I would say. Yeah, I'd say we're very early. I mean, think about it like this. You know, we, somebody has managed to invent a de- decentralized currency. Nobody knows who they are. It can be used globally on any electronic device in the world. And there is an exchange rate value in nearly every country in the world. That's, that's a pretty big achievement. But to go from, you can't go from zero. Like, I mean, if we want to match gold, if we want to get to 10 trillion, I think we're at 500 billion right now. You can't go from zero to a trillion without some volatility. Because what happens is, as the price shoots up, some people are like, holy crap, I've got like a bunch of money here now. I can buy a house or a car or whatever. So they sell a bit. So you're going to get volatility. And that's why you know most Bitcoiners would say to most people coming into Bitcoin is, do not put much money into this. It's volatile. It's risky. You're essentially making a bet. It's an investment in the future of money. Now, for me, volatility doesn't worry me uh, in the short uh, sorry, in the long term, what worries me is the debasement of currencies, of fiat currencies. Like my, so if you think in terms of savings, I'm I can say with a pr- you know pretty confidently any Bitcoin that I buy today, in five years will will be more valuable than it is today. That has been true, I think even on a four year period, almost at any period in Bitcoin. Like every Bitcoin ever bought has been worth more after four years. So in my head, I'm like, well, if I'm earning pounds and I want to save that, I want to save for the future, I know at the moment I'm losing 5 to 10% a year value. So you compound that over four years. That's, I'm losing a lot there with inflation. Right, but I've never understood this argument, Peter, because nobody does invest in fiat currencies. Nobody, nobody invests in pounds, sterling. They, put that, they buy other things with it. They buy either you know shares, which also go up, Every four years, uh, fairly reliably. So you don't, you you never had a savings account, like I have. Well, for walking around money, you do, but I mean, nobody nobody expects to get long term value out of fiat currencies because of inflation. Yeah, but that's the point. We we've, we've been conditioned to accept inflation, which is itself theft. Inflation is. But if a, we're talking about investments, then we don't invest in fiat currencies. We just use them as a means of temporary exchange. So well, savings, savings. I mean, my parents always had savings. Right, but they probably, if they're not going to use it for four years, then they're putting it in a term deposit where they're, which is going to outstrip inflation. But but that's the point at the moment. We it's not outstripping inflation. Well, right now we're in a high inflation environment, but but it hasn't it hasn't for a long time now. Like mm-hmm. is it, you know that we're talking I, since the probably two thousand and eight financial crisis. I doubt very much. Yeah, if you're incredibly cautious and all you're doing is investing in term deposits and yeah. like just something that's or that, that's cash, a cash management account, then you're probably a little bit less than inflation. But if you're that cautious, then I wouldn't recommend that you buy Bitcoin because mm. the volatility is huge. If you're willing to put up with the risk of Bitcoin, then you're willing to put up with the risk of putting it in uh, an exchange-traded fund that tracks the FTSE 500. And in that case, you are getting returns that far outstrip inflation. Yeah, it depends. I mean... I- yeah, I, I think I probably just want to go a little bit more nuanced than this just so I get my point clear. Um, when I talk about, uh, you know, there's another example. Let's take my business. Yeah. I, I operate a business. 
you know, with a business with a team of eight, you have to have a high level of cash flow. So I have to operate always with six figures in the bank. I have to always have that money there. I can't invest that money. I can't put that elsewhere. But that also is getting debased month on month. And so there I'm, you know, I'm, I'm losing value just by the fact I have to have cash flow. I have to hold, I have to hold money back to pay my tax bill at the yeah, end. Yeah, right. So, so that is being debased. But there is no reason for us to be debased apart from the fact that governments print too much money. It is a monetary phenomenon, inflation. So, you know, for me, there are alternatives. Now, I can't, as a business, put it into Bitcoin because of the short-term volatility, but I do have to constantly think about this. And it reminds me of the fact that inflation is a theft from us that we, we shouldn't have to go through and we don't have to go through. But the bigger point is when you look at something like the inflation we're, we're dealing with here, I, I'm going out to Lebanon next week. I've been out to Argentina. I've been to Venezuela. I've been to countries with very high inflation. For them, holding Bitcoin is a real alternative and a valuable alternative even in the short term. Yeah. So if you had up on there, if you had the Bitcoin chart against the US dollar, you know, you would see we had a spike in the price and the peak was probably a year and a half ago. If you go to Argentina, it's now. Right. Like the highest price is now. So, right. yeah, I, I, I don't all, when I talk about these things, I don't always talk about it just from the perspective of me, somebody living in, you know, yeah, somewhere like the UK, where even though we've got kind of high inflation, yeah, there are places where it's much worse and it's a much more useful tool. That's why when I travel for the job, I go to these places because... This is the true story of inflation, the, the the real serious side of inflation. But it's we do have the potential of having those levels of inflation happen in Australia, UK, US. We could have high double-digit inflation over the next 10, 20 years. It's entirely possible. And so for me, it's just like Bitcoin makes a lot more sense. Hmm. I know long-term that it's just a good place I can put my money. It can't be stolen from me, you know. Uh, I can spend it how I want. I can use it how I want. And any money I put there for the long term, I'm pretty sure it's going to protect my spending power. I mean, pretty sure. Not certain. Not, I mean, it doesn't have the, the duration, for example, that a property investment or the stock market has as investments, you know, not as tools of exchange, as invest as long-term investments. Yeah, but you have to just weigh up these things that you understand where you want to put money. I, I, I own a property. Um, would I put all my money in property? No. The two times I bought property uh, properties, one was at the 2008. <laughs> I literally bought it in June 2000. I think it was a month before oh the global goodness. financial crisis. Um, and I just bought one uh, six months ago. Right, I, but I, I'll bet the 2008 property is worth a ton more than you bought it for now. Uh, it was, I mean, I'll tell you, I bought it for 285000 I sold it 16 years later for 475000 so not bad. Yeah, pretty good. I mean, so I mean, I've have heard people say, even who are Bitcoin skeptics, yeah, this might be great in basket case countries like Argentina and Lebanon, but the, what you need is a central bank that knows what it's doing. And I mean, you may, you say that inflation is theft. It is managed theft that we all sort of collectively agree on as being the price that the price to pay. For example, right now. Uh, for certain outcomes and you hope that you have a central bank that's good enough to be able to bring it under control by raising interest rates until until the inflation comes down to its target zone. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't quite understand. I still don't quite understand why one, what, what the transition point is where if we don't become Argentina or Lebanon, why we're all going to undertake this shift. 
Well, okay. I mean, again, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, you talk about could invest in property. Um, like, uh, let me ask it a simpler way. Yeah. If you're, if I'm in Argentina and my currency is being debased by huge inflation and fiscal mismanagement by the government, then if I could invest in the S&P, like in the American stock market, if I let's suppose I have 100,000 US dollars in savings in pesos, if I could just transfer it into US dollars and put it in a in an exchange traded fund that just maps the top, you know, 100 biggest companies on the US stock market or on the Nasdaq, then in the long term, would you recommend that I do that or buy Bitcoin? Depends on your time scale. Like if you're saying to hold something for 10 years, absolutely I'd say Bitcoin because Bitcoin my expectation is Bitcoin will massively outperform uh, the ETF that tracks those companies. And let's be honest, though. I mean, over the last year or two, the, the, the stock market has been super volatile. If you look at the Netflix and Facebooks, yeah. you could put your money in there and lost 60%, 70% easily. So the stock market can be you know, hyper-volatile itself as well. And so, I, th I mean, realistically, if you're advising someone to put their money, you should say put in a few places. Have a yeah. bit of property, have a bit of gold, have a bit of Bitcoin, have an ETF that tracks, you know, and we had this guy on our show called Cullen Roche, and I think his view is it's like 25% cash, 25% property, 25% gold, was it? And 25% equities. I think he's, he has... Seems like a lot of gold, but sure. He, but his view is like, if you always hold 25% of each, what happens is as markets move, yeah. people jump between one or the other. Yeah. That kind of balance means that you will protect yourself long-term. Right. And so Bitcoin is just one of those that sits alongside you know, gold. It's kind of like gold. And so I, I wouldn't tell anyone to put all their money in Bitcoin. That's crazy. Yeah, absolutely stupid because Bitcoin is kind of, is kind of linked to the S&P. It's, it's, the prices are kind of linked. But I would say have a bit of Bitcoin, but have a property. Yeah, have you know, equities. Have, have, have just a mix of things, but a mix of things you understand. Right. I'm not here to say Bitcoin is going to replace everything. You should put all your money in there. Honestly, it's, it's too risky, especially in the short term. But... You never know. If you put a hundred pound a buy, hundred dollars a month buy for the next twenty I mean, I've just my kids were born, I put fifty dollars fifty pounds a month buy in their bank accounts. When they turned eighteen, they're twelve thousand pound. Hmm. Yeah. If my son now puts fifty pounds a month buy and puts it into Bitcoin every month, maybe in twenty years that will be worth significantly better than putting it in any other market. If you were not worried about governments controlling our money or companies like Western Union or PayPal or something like that, controlling our money and potentially censoring people from being able to exchange money for controversial ideas or something like that, then would the use case for Bitcoin be significantly diminished? Hell yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there's a guy called Saifedean who wrote a book called The Bitcoin Standard. And I asked him, what's the biggest threat to Bitcoin? And he said, good government. Right. Yes, yeah, we, only, we only have or need Bitcoin because of bad government. We only have it because I want to send money to Lebanon and Western Union has a limit. Or I'm suffering from high inflation because I live in a country with high inflation. Or I've increasingly got government uh, uh, having banks run surveillance on what I'm spending my money on and invading my privacy. All Bitcoin is, is, is a reaction to large intrusive government and uh, intrusive government policies and bad central bank policy. That's what it is. It's a response to that. Are you worried about uh, like a growth in, I guess, authoritarian surveillance and, you know, there's there's this uh, this whole school of thought which I don't 
I mean, obviously, it's sometimes paranoid and delusional, but some at the edges, I don't know how much credence to give it, which is that, you know, we're sort of on a path towards, uh, you know, digital currencies that will be created by central banks and will will give them the ability to track what we spend, spy on us in minute detail, prevent us from buying things, maybe even dock our pay or our assets if we do the wrong thing, if we talk about the wrong things, you know, have kind of social credit scores where we all have to be good worker bees in order to be able to have access to our assets. Is that? Yeah, CBDCs. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be concerned about with CBDCs. I think... Which are central bank... Digital currencies. Digital currencies. And has any country done this yet? I mean, there's active tests. Uh, China has one. Um, I'm not sure how far along they are. I'm not sure if uh, technically it can be done the way governments think it can be done, but maybe it can be. But the th- the threat is real. Why do they need a digital currency? I mean, wouldn't they? I, I've never quite understood why digital currency is a component of that authoritarian state. I mean, if the North Koreans or the Chinese want everyone to use a particular banking app in order to pay for things in yuan, then they can. I think the idea of a central bank digital currency is what it allows you to do alongside what it allows you to link to the currency, the full control in that at the moment, our money is, there's levels of decentralization. Bitcoin is a fully decentralized money, but we still have elements of decentralization. Like I've got some pounds in my pocket. I have a credit card. No good here, mate. Take your pounds back to Blighty. Not going to accept them here. Danny will take them. (laughs) Uh, but but is it this it, like the fragmented system is an element of decentralization? A bit of cash, a credit card. Like I've got different pools of cash that I can use or money I can use with different technologies or just with cash. But when you move to a world of a CBDC, you're essentially eliminating all of that. That is, a, you're essentially heading towards a single database for the money. So cash is gone. Right. Which, by the way, I I think is a terrible idea. I think I think cash is important for a number of reasons. Yeah, uh, privacy being one of them. But this idea that you have this this one central database central database of money, who has what, who spent with who, I think it just hands too much over to governments when we know what the risks are with government. Right. With the overreach, the potential overreach. And what about private industry? I mean, apparently Google buys 70% of American credit card transactions from uh, vendors and credit card companies and then uses that to cross-reference those transactions to your avatar that they have for you so that they know what you've been spending and they can target advertising to you. That's a true yeah. trove of... I mean, that's, that's, that's a different level of privacy invasion. That, 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 that's an invasion of privacy to sell you, put ads in front of you to convince you to buy shit that you probably don't need. But, but I, think we should, I think we should stay on the central bank digital currency and the risks that, that come with this. You know, uh, I always felt like what happened with the trucker protests was an, an interesting insight to the potential of what can happen. I think you this can, is in Canada. Yeah, I, mean. I, I think you can forget whether you agree or disagree with the protests, but just look what happened. You know, I think the ability to protest is an important part of a democracy. I'm, yeah, I think I think we'd we'd align on that. Yeah. And um, and just to remind people, this was during the pandemic when truck drivers were angry at the Canadian government their lockdown policies and their border policies and so they it was their border policies and these were people who were being essentially being coerced into being vaccinated which again i don't need to get into the whole i'm you know i'm i was vaccinated and 
but but the idea that you know you should have a certain amount of liberty but the the big concerning part of it was was this was a protest protesters were looking to raise funds to support their protest and uh, there was a five, ten, whatever million raised on GoFundMe. The Canadian government blocked that, and they actually started to close down bank accounts of people who were supporting protesters. Now that's concerning because if you suddenly get frozen from your bank account, you can't pay your mortgage. Your credit rating can be affected. You can lose your house. If you can't get money out of the bank, you mm. can't feed yourself. So being financially frozen is is. I think a terrifying prospect and given that tool and that ability to the government I think is super scary especially you know in a world where if you eliminated cash and you only had the CBDC you can switch people off you can switch mm. people off from society and I just you know I I accept government and I am I do support the idea of democracy but I don't support the idea of giving government so much power that they can essentially coerce your vote or coerce your decision making based on blocking you from have, being able to make financial transactions. Yeah, that's that to me crazy. Super, but they can do that with right. these tools. I mean, it, it happens in China. You can be stopped from being able to buy plane tickets. Mm. You can stop from being able to uh, get on trains just by saying the wrong thing on WeChat. That, that, that is something that happens. And, you know, we're a long way from China, but we are seeing the types of things that are concerning. I mean, another example, we have these... Um, this ultra-low emission zone in London. You were at this. Yeah, I saw actually you tweeting about this. Yeah, explain the ultra-low emission zone. So it's just, I think it's just another misguided uh, green policy. And, and I'm not, um, you know, I, I support, I support uh, smart, intelligent green policies, not those that end up becoming a tax on the poor. This is essentially a tax on the older cars. It's which, a congestion charge in London, is that right? But only for cars that aren't. Yeah, so we already scratch. have a congestion charge, which is essentially £50 to enter London. This is an additional charge whereby if your car is not compliant with the ultra-low emission grading, whichever, whatever that is, I don't actually know what it is, that you can be charged. But essentially what the Mayor of London has done is he's put cameras up all around London, which uh, track your number plates, can track where you go, track where you've been, and then they can charge you for uh, um, uh, travelling into parts of London. Now... If you link that to a CBDC, you can automatically be deducted. Mm. And this, to me, is the kind of policy that's come through, which I think is an unfair tax on the poor. I think the the vandalization rate of these uh, uh, ULES cameras, which I think is something ridiculous, like 75% have been vandalized. I think that's uh, you're at the point where the government needs to listen. They need to go, hold on. People really hate this policy. Maybe we've got this one wrong. Mm. And so I just think giving the government cameras everywhere that can track everything, money that they controlled, the trajectory of where we're heading is is too much control in the hands of people that I think have proven that they can't be trusted. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you not worry about it? I do. I do worry about it. I do worry about it, especially since each step along the way seems to have its own internal logic. Like, well, you know, here's here's this camera instead of – you know, finding, let's take a speed camera, which is an example that more people in more places would be familiar with. And instead of sending you a speeding fine, and then if you don't pay it, uh, you know, we send you another speeding fine that's higher. And then if you don't pay that, then we send you a court summons. We cancel your driver's license. And if you still drive, then we send you a court summons. And then, like, that all sounds complicated. Why don't we just dock 
the, the fine from your bank account when you get snapped by the speeding camera. Like that seems a lot more efficient for everybody. But of course, then you're going down the path of what you're talking about. And uh, that would worry me. I mean, I already live in what I regard as being an extremely nanny state uh, country and state in particular. I've lived most of my adult life in New York where there is a, you know, there are some things that are bizarrely dictatorial in New York City, like not being able to drink a beer in a park and stuff like that and being bothered, you know, about about little ordinances and things like that. But in, in general, you can drive faster on the freeways and you're not going to get snapped by some hidden speed camera. You can do, you can generally get your funk on uh, more than you can here. Here we are an obedient people. We saw it during the pandemic, uh, you know, a high level of what sociologists call vertical trust, uh, which is the kind of uh, trust in institutions and authority uh, that you see a lot across East Asia, for example, and not so much at all in countries like the UK and the US. And that was a really interesting, I think, sociological experiment where Australia and New Zealand seem to have developed this uh, almost Asian-style vertical trust in a way that is unusual in the Western world. You know, there are countries that have a lot of Horizontal trust, meaning trust between people and not a lot of vertical trust. So, uh, you know, Greece or Italy might be countries like that where neighbors trust each other, that you trust strangers, but you don't trust that the government's going to do anything right. And then there are other countries that might be Japan, uh, where there's a lot of trust in government and in authority, but not a lot of, but a lot of suspicion about whether your fellow man is going to do the right thing. And you tend to see more horizontal trust and less vertical trust in Western, uh, democracies except for australia why, why do you think that is because i remember during the pandemic um and do you know what that the pandemic screwed me up a lot it, it shifted my whole world quite significantly because i started out as i did an interview with a doctor early on a friend of mine and he was talking about the influx of impatient patients suddenly coming into uh the hospital and he said it was it was a trickle and then it was a stream and then they didn't know what the hell they were dealing with mm. And when the first lockdown happened, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. We should be doing this. And now I look back at embarrassment on that mm. because it wasn't even a two-week lockdown. It ended up being months of lockdown. I've looked at how we were lied to by yeah, we, all the text messages came out from Mac Hancock talking about we need to scare people. You know, I've, see, I've seen all that stuff. I got vaccinated. I don't know if I made the right decision anymore because I don't know where to find the truth anymore. My whole world has been shifted to a place of not trusting the government but not knowing who to trust instead. I mean, I don't think you should trust the government, but I do still trust uh, scientists and I do still trust the medical establishment and the vast bulk of medical evidence. Uh, And it's not just from drug companies, which some people say, oh, you can't trust Pfizer. I don't trust Pfizer, but I trust a lot of very, very well-educated people who uh, have gone over this a bazillion times by now and who find no... Uh, long-term negative effects from the vaccines to speak of uh, and who, who say that it has a, it's very, very good at preventing hospitalization and death. So it was probably the right thing to do to get it. Um, and then I agree with you that, the, that you know, where, where we fall on things like lockdowns, I mean, in, in countries where the, the, the virus was running rampant, it's hard to understand what the point of a lockdown is. I think in 2020 and throughout most of 2021, there was a lot of reason for lockdowns in 
uh, places where there was no uh, social contagion, uh, like here in Australia. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we can misremember the harshness of the Australian lockdown. I'm not making any apologies for um, isolated instances of police overreach or, you know, silly laws like not allowing someone to lie on the beach, <laughs> you know, and being, having, making them go home. But the reality is that, you know, I, I, in February of 2021, when the entire world was on fire with Delta and, uh, you know, people were not locked down in the US and UK necessarily, but they were huddled inside and sheltering in place because of the, the wave of increasing infectiousness. I went to see Hamilton in Sydney and in a packed theatre. Like that was the, there was no COVID uh, and so a succession of moderate lockdowns in New South Wales managed to keep reining it back in because we invested in contact tracing uh, and we checked in everywhere with QR codes and we had this, yeah, quasi-authoritarian system where every single place that you went to, you scanned a QR code. And then when a, when a case would escape from hotel quarantine because every single person coming into the country was locked in a hotel for two weeks before they were allowed back out into the community... Uh, then, you know, you had thousands of contact tracers working around the clock and tracing it back and getting those people to isolate uh, and at home. And we did manage to rein it in again and again and again. And then once, uh, actually, th that was pre-Delta, February of 2021. Then when Delta hit in uh, June, July of 2021, uh, it was too infectious and the contact tracers were unable to get it under control. And then we had the bad lockdown, which was like 100 days in New South Wales. Melbourne had, had it much, much worse because they had a more incompetent uh, contact tracing. They had different demographics. They had an inferior health system. So that was where you saw those really gnarly, you know, videos of, you know, people just relentlessly locked down. And there were horrible examples of police going to people's houses because they'd posted on a Facebook page that they were going to join a protest in the city or something. And it, it's, re it's reminiscent of the, uh, the Canadian truckers thing. Mm. Of like, why would a person be... Ultimately, most of these things got overturned, so you know sanity prevailed. But why would a person even feel that they were under threat initially of being arrested and punished for saying that they were going to go to a rally during a lockdown? Um, nonetheless, it's hard to you know at the hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, we didn't yeah. know w what it was at the time. Um, mistakes were certainly made, but you know I. I don't spend a lot of time. I don't stay up at night thinking that we were hoodwinked into a, a pandemic. Uh, no, I, I, I've never, I've never or thought that it that. was a dress rehearsal for authoritarianism or something. No, I, it, 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 I think one of these things just comes down to incentives, human behaviour, um, and I, I just think it's mainly a series of unfortunate things. Sometimes giving too much power to idiots. Mm. Um, I, yeah, and I there were I think there were good examples. I say good examples, but actually, really, they're terrible examples of uh, police in the UK, Australia, America being given too much authority and being. I, th I mean, I, th I seem to remember one. It might have been in the UK where a girl was literally being strangled by a police officer, and I remember seeing things like that, and they were just terrible. But I didn't. Re I didn't really want to get into a COVID debate, but more the point was is that I think the whole period has just made me a lot more critical aware that we can be lied to by you know, significant lies from people of power and authority. Matt Hancock, all the text messages came out, they lied, they just lied to us. Matt Hancock was the... Uh, he was the... Uh, was it, Position? Health, health secretary, yeah. Right. And uh, I can't remember if he, he was... Um, 
his position was afterwards, but he was the health secretary. But things can't things also be just taken out of context? Like I vaguely no. remember those tweets. If you're saying that we no. need to scare the shit out of everybody, then can't the generous interpretation of that be like, fuck, we need to get people to take this seriously because it's going to be really bad? Uh, I think that's very generous. I, I I think I would have to have the tweets in front of me to like, sorry, the, the text to show them. Right. But, but this is at a time, you've got to remember, you've got to couple this with parties. Yeah. <laughs> parties within government yeah. when they're trying to tell us to scare the shit and stay at home. I'm just saying... this. It, there's a mix of bad and misinformation yeah. or disinformation, and it, you know. And I think if you if you look at the government, you treat them as what they are is a part of the elite who can tell us that we have to stay at home, destroy our businesses whilst they're having parties, getting drunk within you know, the 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 uh, the offices of government. When you expand this to more power, how how can it be misused? Mm. And so I'm not a no government person. I'm not an anarchist. It's just this check and balance. And I yeah. just think we've gone too far. There's too much overreach. So the idea of, you know, you couple a pandemic with a central bank digital currency, you couple a lockdown with a CBDC. I mean, how scary could that get? Yeah. The kind of things they could do. Okay, well, we're in a pandemic. You shouldn't be buying alcohol. You cannot buy alcohol. Right. You know, that kind of weird, scary shit yeah. they might do. And I just, well, you can imagine like it needs to see that you're... There was a period where you could only get in your Uber if you took a photo of yourself wearing a mask mm. and Uber had an AI to check that you were wearing a mask, right? You can imagine that technology being like before you leave your house, you have to be wearing a mask. Or if you're going to go into a cafe, you have to be wearing a mask. Um, it wouldn't be a pretty world where you're micromanaged by bureaucrats yeah so i think we have to push back so for me uh i think it's an important for people to fully understand what a cbdc is and push back because i think people could be easily hoodwinked into thinking this is great i mean rishi sunak branded you know, branded it Bitcoin, right and but even, again even without the digital currency I'm, there's something i'm not getting about this why couldn't they just do that to us already i mean yes you could use cash for everything Right, but we don't. It would still be devastating. I don't have the cash on hand. If they wanted to punish me for having this conversation, they could just freeze my bank accounts. They did it with the truckers, and assuming that we're not all using Bitcoin, we don't need the digital currency. They can do it already. Yeah. So, in terms of freezing bank accounts, they can. Okay. Like I say, look, but you still might have a credit card. They would have to go through every financial institution, every bank, and have you block banned by everyone which i, I don't know most of us probably only deal with two or three financial institutions at the most but maybe you can just go and get a new credit card the next day from somewhere else or you know the fact is you do also have cash i mean it's a lot of effort to block your account but when you go to a cbdc it's not just blocking your account it's actually deciding what you can spend your money on right like put blocks on you cannot spend your money on this auto deducting from your account so speeding ticket was a great example. What if they auto-deduct on the last day of the month and you were right on your you know, limit and it push you over your overdraft and then you get a fine from the bank? What if you wanted to appeal it? Are you less likely to appeal because you can't be bothered because you've already had it deducted? You know, where else, may, what new fines might they introduce? Mm. Yeah, I don't think the ultra-low emission zone is a green policy. I just think it's a tax. That's what right. I think it is. I right. don't think it's going to make one iota of difference to global emissions well, I, I don't think it'll make a relevant change, you know, a statistically significant change. To me, it's just a tax, but it's a tax on the poor. Mm. And so when you start to just, you start to look at all these different pieces, you know, you, you, you know more surveillance, you know, more control over the money, massive growth in government debt, you start to realize, like, as much of the monetary system I can get away from the government, the better. It's a right, bit like separation right. of 
church and state. I think yeah. the separation of money and state would be a good thing. Personally, I quite like the idea of getting rid of central banks. I quite like the idea of having a fragmented financial system, different currency, different currency options. So when they fail, they, the fa- failures are localized. Right, right. Rather than you know, global mm. as, as we have now. So, And that's the other thing about Bitcoin. Going back to Bitcoin, it's, to me, it's, I think it's a mistake to think of Bitcoin as perfect functioning money today because it isn't. What it is is the potential to be the best money there is on a number of different factors. You know, when, when you compare it to fiat money, and you, you look at the, the pros and cons, okay, where does it lose? Yes, it's volatile. Yes, there isn't a physical cash equivalent. But where is it better? Well, it cannot be debased. Yeah, the government cannot block transactions. They cannot send stop me sending money to you. So in a scenario where there is a lockdown or you you can't access your money, I can send you Bitcoin. Nobody can stop that. I can send it globally wherever I want. So it has all these other factors that make it an interesting alternative to the current financial system, the current money. And, and so n- n- nobody should really be putting all their money in it now, but they should be learning about it and considering maybe I should put a small amount in. Mm. And maybe that small amount I'm putting in isn't even an investment. It is a, it is a, vote, is a, is a vote for resistance against the government. It's to say, there's this thing you don't have control of. There's this one thing you can't stop. And to me, that's, that's a super important idea. That said... Bitcoin's gone from nowhere to being the eighth biggest currency in the world. You know, it will eventually take the seventh slot and the sixth and the fifth. It will keep growing. It is a beast like that. And so for me, it makes sense to have a certain amount of my money in there. So it's both a protest and a sensible place mm. to store some money. Yeah. And it, and a hedge, I guess, right? I mean, a, a hedge, but the- money under the pillow. So what's a really there's a really interesting chart where if you look at the um the rise in the price of bitcoin it correlates quite quite close to uh the periods of government printing you know massive expansion of um uh, uh, the government's balance sheet and that's a quite interesting point is that people say oh I was told this is hedge against inflation it's dropped 50% you have to be ahead of the curve yeah i don't mean a hedge against inflation i mean a hedge against uh, against the government, the kinds of policies that we're talking about or the sort of dystopian future that could be ushered in. Because it's very hard to argue against these things as well. You know, there's a language game that gets played where, you know, you argue against the ultra-low emission vehicle zone and people say, well, why don't you want to do anything about the climate? Or you argue against speed cameras and you say, do you want the roads to be more dangerous and more people to die on the roads? Mm. um, You know, there's always a compelling reason for the people who want greater intrusion into our lives to justify it <laughs> you know you argue you know against the the person being prosecuted for putting up on facebook that they were going to attend a rally and you say what do you want you know old people to be dying of more people to be dying of covid um no of course not but if you follow that logic you end up in a quite a dark place if you're doing if you're deploying the tools of the state to be maximally intrusive in order to protect us all from ourselves I don't want to live in that society. No, I don't. I, th- I think what's quite, I find quite interesting about you, Josh, and why I wanted to talk to you is, uh, you know, I don't. You, I would certainly place you. You might not want to be placed, and you might find there's a massive insult. But I think you are. I feel like there's some alignment in our thinking. I, I feel like you're probably a bit more to the the left than the kind of people I get on my podcast. But I but I don't feel like you're 
become one of these captured crazy left people or who will just accept anything with government. No. A much more rational, reasonable person. Who I'm, I'm an anti-authoritarian. I'm yeah. an anti-establishment person. I mean, I just think you, we have all have to be independent. I mean, to the, whatever enhances the greatest amount of human flourishing I am for, I would say that is my guiding light. And if you can achieve, if you can use the state to help with that, then that's great. I, but I don't want people to be tied down by bureaucracy or intrusions into their lives because that doesn't enhance human flourishing. I like independent people. And I, uh, we did an interview this things. morning with a, with a guy who works. He's like a financial advisor uh, in a family office and he works on a state plan. And he said that I think his number was the, uh, the Australian government uh, says that uh, – is it now, or is it, we're heading towards? They're heading towards fifty percent of GDP will be generated by the government. <laughs> yeah, which is firstly, I you know, funny that the government would say that because the government doesn't. Right? Generate How any is that GDP. even possible? Well, I, th- what I does think, that even mean? I think it really means that fifty percent of all, a fifty percent of the country will be working for the government. Did that he say what time right. period it was? That can't be right. I think well, that must be like extrapolating from if the if the government continued to grow at the rate that it's been growing over the past ten years or something. But I think it's fifty I th- years. I think something along those Amazing. lines. But, but the point being, I think what's more more interesting is that this constant growth in the size of the government. So even during the pandemic in the UK, when uh, businesses were closed or had to close or couldn't open, I, I mean, I know people who lost their businesses. The UK government grew, grew by ninety thousand employees. Right, it's it's a constant growing beast. Yeah. It constantly needs to be fed, and again, this is why Bitcoin is an interesting pushback on that. The idea that you cannot just constantly print your way out of mistakes. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I did economics at school. There was always this idea of a surplus and a deficit. It would never have a surplus anymore. It's just right, a constant right. growing yeah. deficit. Yeah, you know, if you look at where. Uh, our government is spending money at the moment. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of money which is just going into you know, the bottomless pit, which is the NHS. And don't get me wrong, I love the idea of our, our health service, but it but it doesn't work anymore. You know, social care. Uh, Does it not work anymore? Doesn't no. it not work anymore because conservative governments have ripped money out of it for no, it's not decades. That. No, it's it's not that. I mean, you, I think if you're gonna uh, if you're gonna be fair about the problems of the NHS, you would recognise this is. Uh, this has been something. This has been a growing problem for decades, which has gone through successive uh, conservative and Labour governments. Because it's oh yeah, I mean I don't mean to throw conservatives exclusively under the bus because you've got you had New Labour, which were also uh, fairly conserv- small C conservative. But I, I mean I think if you actually look at the bang for the buck that the UK gets, it doesn't spend very much on the NHS in comparison to other public systems and it gets a lot quite a lot out of it it's like it's a lot more efficient than the u.s system the u.s spends like twice as much on healthcare as the u.s does as the uk does and gets slightly better outcomes um tw- so 220 billion and i think our tax receipts are a trillion so it's like 22 percent of uh the government's funding uh of the tax receipts going to the nhs so i mean i don't know i what- think it's smaller as a share of gdp than it used to be the nhs i don't think it is I actually think it's higher. We've mm, looked we'll at these. Fact ch- check we've, that. we've had the charts, haven't we, Danny? Yeah, I'm almost certain it has. See what the but, percentage of GDP that the NHS was in, like the year 2000 or 1995. But the point is, it, to me, it is a broken system, and the, the 
the signals of how broken it is is just the size of the waiting list. It's just going up and up and up. Right, but wouldn't up. more money fix that? You say that, but constantly the waiting lists go up, and constantly every government promises more money and more money. Yeah, they don't goes really in. deliver much more money, do they? Yeah, they do. I mean, it's gone up. What has it gone up? A hundred billion in the last. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I still not very much. I but think I'm the US is eighteen or something. I I'm surprised not higher because I'm pretty sure when we did the Dan Tab interview, it was. Can you go on the Office for Budget Responsibility? I mean, without getting into the weeds about yeah. the NHS, I take your broader sorry, point. Sorry, because, yeah, he's saying that's a percentage of GDP. I'm saying a percentage of tax receipts. Yes, I understand the difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I think GDP is the fairer measure because. Yeah. Um, uh, economies grow, um, and and you know, ta- different governments decide to tax differently. And sometimes there's a huge amount of hypocrisy amongst conservatives who say that they want surpluses, but actually cut taxes in ways that deliver deficits. Um, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy sympathy for a broadly libertarian worldview, which is like people should be allowed to do what they want to do, and there shouldn't be huge bureaucratic systems thwarting their aspirations. I think you should be able to set up a company very quickly. I think you should be, you know, things should be nimble and government should be easy to work with. My only caution is that sometimes people who talk that talk will vote for policies or be parts of parties like the current Republican Party in the United States, which will actually systematically make life harder because, I mean, as, as Al Franken, the former Saturday Night Live comic and sometimes senator said, you know, Republicans run on the platform that government doesn't work and then they get elected and prove it. <laughs> so, you know, there are things in the US like doing your taxes every single year, which could easily be undone. In other countries like Australia, the taxes just get done for you because the government, the tax office already has all of the information. Mm-hmm. Everyone who's employed you has had to send in forms that say that you're being employed they could just do it and you could just not have to worry about it. But because Republicans are in bed with H&R Block and the tax you know, accounting people, they don't want things to be easy. And really, they don't want it to be easy to pay taxes because they want taxes to be a monumental pain in the ass so that the party that campaigns on lower taxes gets more votes, right? I mean, so there are these... You go to a country like Denmark, which or which I lived in for a semester and went to school in Copenhagen, went to university in Copenhagen, and it's so easy working, dealing with the government. The, there are no lines in the post office. You know, things function easily. In the US, my God, try going into the post office and sending a package. It takes you three hours. Try to go and get your license renewed at the Department of Motor Vehicles. It's a nightmare. That is because of a lack of funding. I mean, maybe it's partly because of unions as well, but it's largely because of a lack of funding and a certain lack of kind of nimbleness and adeptness from government. So I think there I think you could have a situation that would please libertarians and also lefties alike just by having governments that are efficient and lean but also well funded so they can do they can actually help you to achieve your aspirations instead of thwarting them. What would what would make them more nimble and efficient though? Because I think that's kind of one of the main challenges that that government has that businesses don't like the the free market kind of works kind of works yeah if yeah let's let's avoid arguments about you know a full free market would lead to lots of pollution like just companies that are shit lose their customers and they fail and good companies rise to the top that kind of kind of works you know you make a good show you're going to get more listeners and 
if your show goes a bit shit, you'll get less. Like, it just kind of works. Well, you hope that in a democracy that the voters are the people who decide on what's working and what's not. And if things get too sclerotic and hard to deal with, then voters vote in a different government. I mean, it but would when be they're a- both not working, when the when the when the institution of government isn't working, yeah, there is a problem. Yeah, that's. But the- hopefully, there are people who come along and say this whole thing is not working. I mean, you know, sometimes people vote for such people. Margaret Thatcher ran on that platform. Ronald Reagan ran on that platform, and they got in and they did make things much more lean and efficient and that had downsides and it had upsides and you know the- yeah we're seeing that in argentina i just said to you i was out in argentina and Millet. i don't know if you know much about this guy but he won the primaries he is a libertarian right so he is campaigning on uh on a uh, his campaign is to get rid of the central bank to dollarize the country and reduce the size of government i mean he's a libertarian and wow. and he uh, he led the primaries and there's a very high chance he'll become president of argentina that will be a drastic and radical change but that's taken decades of you know inflation that's taken decades of people having their you know the country kind of systematically destroyed by government to get to that point mm. and and like how bad does it have to get for well hopefully you have responsive yeah systems of government that are more nimble at reacting to popular will but, but i don't think we do that's our pro- i think that's the problem at the moment it's like right now i just uk is a great example we we are, we essentially have two parties with this kind of like you know, champagne socialists in the middle to kind, mm. of, kind of separate the two. But there's there's nobody to vote for anymore. There's no can I vote for Richie Sunak? Absolutely not. Would I vote for Keir Starmer? Absolutely not. You know, do I think the Conservatives stand for anything conservative anymore? No, I don't. Do I think the Labour are offering anything different that's interesting? No, I don't. Mm. There's like nothing of interest. There's nothing positive there at all. Like I just, there's no one to vote for. All right, we need to get Lex Friedman and Andrew Huberman to run for uh, for Parliament in the in the United Kingdom and change the country. Uh, I'm going to let you out of this uh, sauna sweat. Yeah, it's that hot, we're man. It's getting hot and it's getting late. Um, look, uh, thank you so much. Uh, well, I don't know if you should be thanking me or me you because it's a crossover podcast. But yeah, I don't know what's going to. I don't. Know, it doesn't feel like uh, it was uncomfortable enough for you. <laughs> I can make it more uncomfortable. <laughs> Stick around for the bonus segment no i'm kidding uh okay if next time uh if the if the government ever tries to deduct money from my account for speeding then i'll buy some bitcoin okay yeah you should deal so do you not own any bitcoin i got rid of it during the crash that's the words you told at the bottom yeah damn it i actually needed to liquid i needed to be a bit more liquid anyway okay fair fair enough fair enough (laughs) by the way i i I much prefer asking questions than answering them i'm I'm never usually a good uh no some people i think some people can do both I think you do both. Ah. I never tend to be a Ah, get out of town. Great. (laughs) Thanks, Peter. Thanks, man.